Hi, this is Sean and welcome to If You've Come This Far, where my friend Chris and I talk to interesting people uh, about interesting topics, whatever they may be doing that can make life more um, fulfilling and compelling. And in this episode, we're talking with Jordan Shapiro, uh, the author of a book called Father Figure. Chris, maybe tell us a little bit about uh, our discussion with Jordan. Yeah, uh, Jordan is 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 a neat guy, um, super smart guy. Uh, he, in addition to the book Father Figure, he also wrote a book which <clears throat> Sean and I both confessed in our conversation with Jordan that we've yet to read. the 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 previous book is called The New Childhood: Raising Kids to Thrive in a Connected World. Um, but he uh, he has an interesting background in, in in a field I know nothing about called depth psychology. He also teaches several courses, including one called The Good Life at Temple. Um, which we talk about. Um, and just uh, yeah, this guy spends a lot of time thinking about, um, you know, how to parent um, and how to uh, live in and contribute to a more just and equitable world. Um, so it was a really neat conversation. Um, we we covered the, the requisite uh whiskey ground at the end of the mm-hmm. call. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not a requisite to like whiskey to be on our podcast, but there does seem to be some sort of correlation there, doesn't there? I don't know why that is. Um, but Jordan is a super neat guy. Um, and we can't, uh, we can't recommend the new childhood book yet because we haven't read it. Um, but, but both Sean and I really enjoyed um, Father Figure. Um, so again, it's this idea of being a feminist dad, but as we talk about with Jordan, I mean, there's all sorts of, uh, of commonalities with being like an anti-racist, uh, dad being just, uh, uh, raising curious kids, raising kids who are empathetic, all of the above, uh, really cool conversation. What, what did I miss Sean? Yeah, no, I just, I just think it's, um, while his tagline is father figure, how to, how to be a feminist dad, I think, um, you know, that term can get politicized. And I think, you know, really for me, the takeaway was just being about a human being and looking at all that shit that, that conditions us, maybe letting that go and just being, being human. Um, and, uh, and I think, and he, he does a, 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 it's a very informative and very entertaining book as well. Yeah. And Jordan very astutely dodged the question of which is the best cheesesteak in Philadelphia. I think that they might have political aspirations, perhaps, um, based on that response. Uh, but it's a fun conversation, one that I really enjoyed. Well, well, just on the political thing real quick, when when I had a pre-call with him, he was wearing Shapiro for governor garb. And, and ah. at first I didn't I didn't I didn't really say anything. And then I looked it up and there there's Shapiro is the Democratic candidate for governor in Pennsylvania. So I emailed him and said, wait, is this your brother or something? He goes, oh, no, it's not my brother, but my brother is friends with him. My, my significant other said, we just got to have a bunch of that swag with, with, <laughs> with your name on it. So they went and bought a bunch of Shapiro for governor swag. Um, I think they will be voting for him. But yeah, that was pretty funny. Yeah, that is funny. Yeah, I'll 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 be on alert for the next time someone named Lozier runs for governor or president or something, and I'll be buying oh, that. God shit forbid. Up too, but... God forbid. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do it. All right, here we go. Here's Jordan Shapiro. Them like 
two months ago that like, I can't be there on Wednesday after 11. So when you said the confirmation, I didn't even read it. I was like, I've already been talking about this for like so long. I don't need to confirm. Well, yeah. And, 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 and I was nervous because I saw that you were in the room. I'm like, Oh, holy shit. What did I do? Yeah. Um, so I'm glad we I'm glad we worked it out. And then I could have I could have I turned out I could have done it at 12, but I you know I had already talked to you, so I didn't write back. I was like I was like, well, it's fine. We're all set. It's good. It didn't seem like it's anyone cool. was it's cool was ruining their whole day because of me. Well, we we good probably to be back get... with you again. Oh, you guys have met before. Yeah, like, we had one we had one conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, shit. I feel like I'm behind the curve already. Yeah, you're the outsider. You should, oh, you should feel alienated. And story of my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The oppressed uh, straight cisgender white man. That's right. Once again. Yeah. <laughs> All the time. It's. <laughs> it's so well, hard, now I'm looking so at the three of us wondering: is, Does a father figure have to have a beard? Is that part? Yeah. Is that part of the? I call it a philosopher's beard because that's in ancient Greece. Like they didn't even take you seriously. You, you know, you couldn't even think if you didn't have a beard. Oh, see, I just work because I don't have a chin. So it's sort of like uh, a faux chin. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Sean, the other thing that you, it's you funny, I wear it because I have two chins. <laughs> <laughs> Equally yeah. effective. That's lovely. Yeah. yeah. Um, Sean, do you want to get some sort of headgear on before we get started? So you're not the odd man out because Jordan and I are both sporting the the lids you know oh the, the headgear that way i mean i usually have a bucket hat on but i yeah <laughs> i did not i don't i'm good yeah thank you um well jordan uh great to meet you Thanks great for to coming meet you on. yeah this is going to be fun we're, we're we're psyched to talk to you you may have noticed that sean um already hit record because we're always worried that we're going to forget yeah I, um, I, know, I, I know the experience yeah yeah and and you're and we were just fiddling with our new microphones and you've even got the what's that called that the, screen in front the of the screen yeah. yeah yeah we probably need to i don't know this. if you need you know i i didn't used to have it and then one time i heard myself on a podcast and there were just too many pops and it annoyed right. me so i was like i'm gonna have to try the screen thing so you, i don't i most of the time it's not on but if it's getting recorded i never know how you're gonna do it it might sound like you yeah, know, you sound great. Hopefully we're not popping too much, but uh, continuous improvement, right? It's the name of the game. Um, exactly. we're, we're getting there. Um, so, yeah, we're recording. And, um, and you know, I don't know if you've listened to any of our podcasts, but if you have, you would know that there's no guarantee where this conversation might go, <laughs> um, uh, which is what's fun about it for us. Um, but, I mean, you have like a really fascinating career and a fascinating story. Uh, obviously, we hope to spend a lot of time talking about the book, Father Figure, How to Be a Feminist Dad. Um, if, if it's okay, we could just launch in because I would love to hear you talk about sort of I guess your process, uh, and, and, and if you want to start out with sort of like the summary of what the book is, I definitely want to want to give you a chance to do that. But then maybe talk about, um, you know, I guess your process of becoming a feminist dad. You talk in the book about how you're a work in progress. Um, so mm -hmm. if we could start there, it'd be that's cool. where you wanted me to start my own process. Oof. That's yeah, a, how, how good are rate yourself you know I, like, that's on a scale from one to ten <laughs> i give my no i mean look 
I, I, and I write about this in the book, you know, on some level, I think I always was, um, you know, at least in, by intention. Um, and that was always the, the purpose. I wanted to be a feminist dad. I've, I've never shied away from identifying myself as a feminist um, uh, at any point. And, you know, the only time I ever shied away from identifying myself as a feminist is in the last couple of years, as I've started to hear more people get angry that men uh, identify as feminists, right? So, so actually, to be more feminist, I've tried, I've, I've, I've considered maybe not doing it, but never, never before that. Um, um, and so, you know, for me, the real question was: now I have two step kids and two kids, but at the time when I first started writing the book, I just had my two sons, and I was really thinking a lot through all of the raising them. They're now teenagers driving, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty much grown. But when they were little, I was always thinking a lot about how do you make sure that you don't, that you raise two boys that at least have some sort of feminist consciousness, right? So that they're really, you know, I was never a concern so much. I, I didn't have a daughter. A lot of people hear the book, they think it's a book about raising daughters. That was never my life. I was never like, that's what I'm, I'm like, how do I make sure I have boys that aren't, um, socialized within our crazy patriarchal system in order to do like think all the wrong ways because i know the places where i thought the wrong ways i know all the pressures there are to like sort of trick you that the right things are the, are the wrong things all the ways that we sort of adjust to avoid feeling alienated feeling like we we don't have friends feeling like we're cool enough and then we and we start to adopt things that aren't in align with how we want to be to begin with i mean that was i i assume that you, you that resonates with a lot of people um but you know that was my entire experience growing up i remember middle school you know being in the locker room and like there were certain things you had to do to fit in with everyone and i didn't like them but i learned how to do them i even started to believe some of them and how did you i make sure that i had i you know, the book was about the ways in which I was constantly thinking about raising kids who had at least enough gender consciousness that they were making authentic decisions. You know, I'm not looking, I wasn't looking to raise kids who could speak in all the jargon like I can. They don't need to be able to say misogyny. They happen to be great at it because they lived with me while I wrote the book. <laughs> but that wasn't but that was but that wasn't my goal. They don't need to have all the words, but but I did need them to be thoughtful enough that they were always that that equality was taken for granted, right? That, that in, in every way, whether whether that's LGBTQ equality or or fem, or straight up feminism for cisgender women, you know, how, what, to me they're the same. But but I'm trying to make a distinction for for you and for and for the for the listeners. All those things mattered to me. I really really wanted, and, and and not just because I was trying to be like I want kids who can navigate the world and don't get in trouble. Right. It was more about like be good people, make space for, for for as many, you know, make space to always be treating other people with decency and dignity. And to do that on some level, I think what a lot of people don't understand is that to just treat people with dignity and decency, it means on some level you have to think about the so-called woke issues. Right. Because they're not about policing your language. The, the, right, no one's trying to like say no. You're not allowed to say gay, right? There, I mean, there are some people trying to say that, but but <laughs> but my point is the 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 progressive liberal side of this argument is not trying to say, police your language. They're trying to say use language that doesn't police other people's ability 
to speak. Do you, do you understand? You know, like as a, as a professor, I'm constantly speaking and I have to think, is my language alienating the trans students and making them not feel comfortable talking? Is the w- words I say alienating the black students and making them not feel comfortable talking? I'm not policing my language because I'm afraid I'm going to get in trouble or canceled. I'm policing my language in order to stop policing other people's language. Yeah. Well, and I, th- yeah. and I think that's really interesting because you talk about in the book that one of the things that you bring up in your class is the concept of uh, mindfully listening and speaking intentionally. And which is, I think what you, what you, you were just referring to. And what I, when you say that, I think about, okay, I, I, I can be so worried about saying the right thing that I don't say anything. And so if, if I'm speaking intentionally with, with, you know, in, in, uh, in an effort to really connect with you, that's all I can do. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And that's that's all anyone's ever really asking anyone to do. Right. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who feel like, you know, when you say don't use he, you have to say he or she or you have to use non-binary language. They hear that as you're telling me what I can and can't say. But, you know, and that's a mistake in how people present it because they say you have to use that language. What they really mean is if you want as many possible people to feel free and to feel like their voice matters, this language is better because the other language tells them that their voice doesn't matter, right? Here, let me try to think of an example of that. I, I don't know, just like, you know, when, when we say mankind, this is sort of the mo- like most obvious. When we say mankind, nothing wrong with it. None of us, I mean, there's none of us, my, you know, none of us really mean just, just men when we say mankind. And then nobody right. thinks that anyone just means that. But the point is, every time, if you're a little girl, if you're three years old and all you hear all day is mankind, 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 you go, okay, so I guess there is no womankind, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. how do you make them not hear? that that's really the question it's not about saying don't say it or somebody or you're politically incorrect it's it's try not to say it so that you make more room for other people to feel free yeah jordan i uh i I think it was a washington post interview i saw that you had done and you explained that originally the thought behind this book you you originally had thought about writing a book about feminism and only later did it turn into a book about being a dad um like how did how'd that go down like like when did that occur to you yeah uh, well i it, it wasn't so much so 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 I always love, you know, I, I studied gender theory uh, uh, in, in college. I was always, it was always a part of how I've thought about things, you know, again, in one of those things that you sort of learn really quickly, I kind of didn't talk about it too much because mm-hmm. you did, you know, people don't like the idea of men, men don't like the idea of other men talking too much about it. I, I mean, in a very general mainstream average way. So I don't want anyone to go, well, that's not true. Not all men. Of course, not everyone, but in general, you know, I had learned that if you get a little too, too in the weeds with the gender theory, you people zone out, they stop listening. And so I kind of forgotten, but I, on some level, I always wanted to write a f- book for feminine about feminism for men for cisgender heterosexual men right by a cisgender you know I, I don't know if I identify as I identify myself as queer just because I don't like the labels not because of anything you know I am in a heterosexual relationship but uh, but for many years monogamous married um, 
but I, but, but my point is, I wanted to write for people like for 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 cisgender men. Let's just put it that way. I wanted to write a book about feminism for cisgender men. I had didn't think it was possible. I didn't think I could sell it. I didn't think I could ever convince a publisher that they that they should do it. And then I think I wrote an article and one of. And my editor at Little Brown said, you know, you should really write uh, write about fatherhood. And a light went off on my head where I went, oh, this is my opportunity to write that feminist book. This is the angle that makes it that makes it approachable. This is the angle that makes it that makes it possible. So that was how that was how it came. It wasn't it wasn't even that when I started the father one, I knew it was going to be a feminist book. I just there was as I was trying to envision the book about what fatherhood means, what's caught up in fatherhood. And by the way, the reason I want to do that, I talk about this very early in, in father figure is because when I was promoting all my other books, like the new childhood um, and, and started talking about being uh, a, a dad, I just watched people's faces glaze over like, like, and I heard it. People would say it to me like, like, well, dads don't know anything about parenting and you're divorced. So you don't even care about family. And you're, and yet, right. It was just like, you weren't allowed. We don't know it. Right, right? We don't even care about our kids' dads. It's just sort of the assumption, right? We only care about being your dad. Right. Right. And, 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 and that bothered me. So I wanted to write a book where I went, what is all the stuff we assume is loaded in the dad image um, and why, and in what ways is it hurting people? What way is it not? And that's in this book. All of that is still there. I mean, there, I mean, you've both read it. A lot of this book is actually really just about reflecting on what it means to be a dad. But in order to do that in a real honest way, you have to ask the gender question, I think. And if you're not doing that, then, you know, you're not really asking the questions of all the things it means to be a dad. You're just asking the convenient questions about what it means to be a dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm assuming that you had that conversation with your publisher and now your head goes to, wow, what would it be to write this book about feminism centered around being a dad? I'm assuming at that point, your level of consciousness around how you were parenting kind of like took a step jump up. Um, just because, well, now shit, I'm going to actually write about this stuff. Do you remember having any aha moments where it's like, wow, that's a mistake I do make a lot, or that's something <laughs> that's an area for growth. You know what I mean? I'm not sure there's anything in the book that's not that. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's start, let's start there. But I will say that the biggest aha moment for me in the entire process, I'm going to go beyond writing and I'm going to go to promoting it. I'm going to go to living with like, like knowing it's out there in the world, reading reviews, all of that. Uh, um, you know, so basically the last three years of my life, which have, as you said, while I don't think they changed anything essentially about who I was or my values or what I cared about, the, the, the struggle to articulate these things gives you a lot more awareness, right? The mm -hmm. struggle to find the words, figure out in anything, right? If you're going to write a book about working on engines, just having to like model it out and say everything is going to make you a lot more aware of the, mm -hmm. all the specifics. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the, the hardest thing about that has been learning that as my own moods, um, you know, emotions, whether that's depression, whether whether that's a day of frustration, whether that's a day when I'm down or a day when I'm um, uh, manic or, you know, that that those are the hardest times to have the wherewithal 
to come from a place where you can be critical and thoughtful and examine. So, so I often, you know, it's really, it's, it can be really hard at my, when I'm at my lowest. And of course, you know, 2020, 2021 have been horrible years for everyone I've met. Right. So, you know, for me, it involved the serious clinical depression for some people, it might've been less serious for some people it's probably more serious than, mm -hmm. than, than mine. The hardest thing is in those moments, I have so little ability to go, Hey, how do I put all of the principles of book of the book into practice? Because I, I'm so, uh, you know, I'm so irrational that I do a bad job, which just makes me feel worse. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, so this was a really horrible uh, experience for me in that sense is, you know, to articulate all the things you don't want to do and then not have the ability to not do them. Uh, yeah. just, it gets, it makes you further down and down and down. And so that's been really hard. Um, and the, what are those things? We should talk about them in specifics, right? Just th th there's so many, everything about, the mainstream image of fatherhood tells us that we are supposed to be domineering, right? And dominant. Um, every message we get from the television, every, I mean, maybe you can point out like one or two where you go, hey, I saw an ad that was the opposite. Yeah, they exist. I'm not trying to say there's no outliers, but almost every TV show still today, I'll turn on a brand new TV show and I'll be like, I cannot believe that this is still selling the same narrative like in 2021 because people don't even think about it when it comes to fatherhood so how do you stop as a father and how do you not embody domination right mm -hmm. when everything's telling you that that's the best way to prove your fatherness right um and so that's the, to me that's the biggest challenge and i think it's the biggest you know all of a father figure is about in some ways that challenge how do you not see yourself as man of the house, king of the household, in who's supposed to dominate everyone's life, which doesn't mean you're not supposed to be caretaker. It doesn't mean sometimes I'm not the authority that has to say things like, no kids, you have to go to bed now because you have school tomorrow. You know, I'm not saying, no, I'm not trying to be like, you have to be wishy-washy hippie all the time, which I am some of the time, right? Where, where I'm always like, what's your feelings, children? But sometimes I have to say, nope, these are the rules, but yeah. I have to do it in a way where that's not dominating, That that that's actually about caretaker and have to be able to make that distinction. So for example, it's totally reasonable when your toddler is running towards the street to scream at them to stop. It is not totally reasonable to scream at a kid to stop for a lot of other reasons, right? That mm -hmm. becomes a kind of dominating, you know, there's a time where you've got to be like, I got to shock you into not doing what you're doing. And there's times where it's like, I got to slow down and explain to you in a way, uh, you know, ju just last night, I said to one of my sons, he was fighting with his brother. And I, and, and I said, no, you need to, you need to be like, like, you don't, you're, you're acting like depressed, Jordan. You're acting like me when I'm at my worst. You're supposed to act like me when I'm at my best, right? And and it was about getting that same message. I also could have just screamed at it and been like, don't fight. But that would have been modeling the wrong, yeah. the wrong attitude. Yeah. It's, it's, well, it's interesting because, well, sorry, Sean, I was going to say okay. this, notion, this notion, Jordan, that the way I'm hearing you say it is like, you've written a playbook for how to do this. And it's really frustrating when you're like, you you identify that you you're, we're not even able to follow the fucking playbook, right? Like that's a whole nother like encyclopedic, you know, version of, of things that we could write or someone else could write. Right. Uh, but and I, of course, I, I and, it, and of course, it's at the points where I'm feeling the most worthless. 
that I sure. can't follow the playbook, which is even worse. <laughs> right, 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 right. Sorry, Sean, go ahead. Brother. No, I, I was just going to say, and, and I mean, even as you try to follow the playbook, as you're, I mean, you even talk about, even though Chris was, was asking, was asking you to comment on, on, on the difficulty of living up to what you've written at the end of the book, you talk about, Hey, I'm not going to be humble. I'm pretty good at this, which, <laughs> which I thought was awesome. And, and, um, but even as you try to work through it, one, one of the things that I was thinking about, I was reading the book, even as you try to follow this model, which I completely buy into, um, if your significant other isn't on board and everything else around you is, is driving you to not be this more, let's just say a more enlightened human being, that makes it even, even more difficult because our, na our nature may be battling us. And then everybody else around us is saying, well, no, you're supposed to be this. I, it, it can be quite a challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd argue that almost all significant uh, uh, others would be on board, except for they don't know it. So like, right. they're, they, when you start to act it, they're like, you're not doing the right thing. And you, and how do you explain to them that like, just trust me, once I get this right, you're going to be like, wow, I'm, you're the greatest spouse that I've ever, I've ever had. <laughs> right, right. Right. But at first, it's, it might feel like, wait, this is not how fathers are supposed to act. I've been watching fathers on TV. I have my own father. You know, if we're talking about uh, 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 a situation cisgender heterosexual uh, uh, couple, for example, yeah. right? I have yeah. a whole chapter in the book where I talk about the dynamics between fathers and daughters that the whole culture is constantly spelling out that are inherently problematic. And I can't tell you how many women who read the book were like, that section made me so uncomfortable and I'm still not sure if I agree with it. It's so creepy. I mean, I have two daughters and a son and it's a creepy chapter, but I mean, but, but there's so much reality to it too i mean yeah, you know and it's great I, that it you say comes, it it's great that you say it okay read this uncomfortable chapter and recognize what's real in it um yeah yeah and i guess yeah. we should say for the listeners one of the things i talked yeah. about is just how much weird creepy eroticism is imagined in the daddy-daughter relationship right mm -hmm. so what you know i'm supposed to act like what i say you know how many men have you heard say things like find a partner who treats you as well as I do. You mean treats you as the authority in your life who decides how much money you can spend and gets to punish you? What? <laughs> like, like that's weird and creepy, right? Or, or the whole idea that dads are supposed to look at their daughters and be like, you're the most beautiful person. It makes my heart stop. Like, that's creepy, right? <laughs> I'm not saying it comes from any of the dads from a creepy place. I'm just right. saying it comes from a, a, a normal place because we've been, and it comes from a really well-meaning place, but you're watching it in TV. You're watching it in movies like Father of the Bride. I haven't seen the new one yet, but I'm going to watch it because I want to see if they did anything with that or did they make it the same story about how fathers get jealous and depressed because they're losing their daughter, which is really like a husband and wife relationship. What? Right. And we yeah, all yeah. accept that as if that's a normal, yeah. it, like you said, it's weird and creepy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a big distinction uh, uh, that we talk about a lot. So I work for a nonprofit that's in the education space. Um, and we focus a lot of our, our effort and time and thinking on DEI issues, right? Diversity, yeah. equity, inclusion. And, and there's a really important distinction that, that we always need to make between intent and, and effects, right? Um, like, like we're all probably, all three of us, I don't know you that well, Jordan, but I think I know you well enough to say we're all three really well-intentioned guys. Um, but, but what we do and what we say, we need to think about 
the effect now and in the future of those things. So I feel like that's kind of what we're circling around right now. I think uh, especially with our parents. That that's absolutely right. In parenting, you know, when when I'm teaching at Temple University, the end of every semester, I spend at least a full class just asking my students, you know, were there places where I perpetuated microaggressions? And if you don't like that word, you know, are there places where I said things or did things that you thought were uncomfortable that made you go not cool? And you know, I'm always surprised at least, at least, you know, there's at least one thing every class where I'm like, holy crap, why would I do? I had no idea. Thank you for telling me. I will never, literally never do that in a classroom. I'll give you a perfect example of this. One year, someone said, you know, I came in once with, with, uh, I had redone my hair and you made a comment about my hair and it kind of felt, and it was a little, and it was a little creepy because I, and for, I don't know if creepy was the word they used. They said it made me felt, feel weird because suddenly the whole class was talking about my appearance. Mm -hmm. And I was like, right, I have this position of authority and I'm just trying to say, Hey, I noticed you got a haircut, but you're a 17 year eight or 18 or 19 year old girl. And I just made 23 other people look mm. at you and evaluate your appearance in a very yeah. public way, like not cool at all. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that's obvious, you know, my intention was compliment. My intention was notice. Right. Yeah. 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 See, yeah. that's, that's the thing. I really struggle with that because that's like on the other side of it is you notice this person who you have a relationship with and they get something done to themselves and you're saying, Hey, I, you know what I'm sure you you said, Hey, that looks good. Or what? That looks nice. I don't even, I don't even remember, but yeah, exactly. And, but you know, there's a great way to deal with it to, to, and to explain this, which is, it means we have to always be aware of the power dynamics in which we're, yeah. we're, we're, we're talking, right. Had she walked into my office alone and I said, well, maybe I still shouldn't comment on her appearance because that's a situation. But let's say I saw her in the middle of the uh, of uh, of the quad or something. Yeah. Right. There'd be not, nothing wrong with 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 saying, hey, nice haircut. Right. But yeah. from that position of power where I define what everyone in the room is talking about, thinking about and doing, that's not the same thing. And so yeah. to me, at the, at the heart of all these questions is recognizing the power. Right. And I think that this is really important when you get to the fatherhood thing, because all of society, you know, put it's a patriarchy. It literally means ruled by the father. Right. Um, mm -hmm. um, and it, whether we like it or not, it comes with certain power things. And we have to think about how those manifest and what they do if we want to make space for equality. Same as I was talking about the language we use and how we think about whether our language is policed. Right. We are three white cisgender uh, white men. I'm assuming we're cisgender. We all present as cisgender white men. So um, and I shouldn't assume, but let's just say we, 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 we all present that way comes with an enormous amount of authority and privilege. I don't mean we're all great off. I just mean we walk into a room, we talk and people listen and they don't immediately assume we're stupid. Right. They don't mm -hmm. immediately assume we're not saying, you know, they actually go the first assumption I'm going to make is that this is worth listening to and is coming from an authoritative place might prove to be wrong after that but mostly people look at us with, with right we have to think about what that power means and how it either silences others or makes space for mm -hmm. for others you know otherwise uh, you know this is not about saying hey we well it is we do need to give up that power but we can't give it up right because the society is organized in that way all we can do is leverage it in the correct ways to hope that the next generation figures out a better way of, of how to manage their power dynamics so uh so i want to take a quick detour um yeah. you mentioned that you teach at temple university you teach a course called the good life 
<laughs> Can you tell us a little bit? Tell the listeners yeah, too like what the good. What the good. I want. I want to know what the good life <laughs> is all about. Well, I teach three courses at Temple regularly. One is the yeah. Good Life. One is called the Common Good. Um, yeah. These two are part of our intellectual heritage curriculum at Temple, and everyone who goes to Temple has to take one one of the, actually both of these courses. They're not all taught by me. There's lots of people who who, who teach them, um, um, and and they're really. Uh, about general ideas in human, you know, academia, philosophy. You know, they're definitely a little bit Eurocentric and male-centric because, unfortunately, those are what we have books left from, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, you know, like... Um, and we're always trying to figure out how do we make sure that we are thinking about making it more diverse and, and that's got challenges. That's a whole other, di other discussion. Uh, the good life is a discussion about how do we think about ourselves living in the world in a very, to me, and you know, what's our goal, right? Is our goal, you know, I think a, a lot of people by the time when they first get to college and mostly it's, it's freshmen and sophomores who take this class, right? They, they haven't even stopped to consider like, what's the point, right? They were right. like, I got to go to high school. Right. I got to get into college. I got to get a job. No one stopped to cassette to remind them that, you know, we have jobs in order to contribute to a human community and exchange like the needs we need to make everybody live a better life. Right. Um, you know, they haven't even considered that they haven't even considered like questions of, is it, is it okay for me to put my needs be above other people's, you know? And it's not, I'm not trying to say they're greedy. I'm just saying like they're 18, 19 years old. They're, they're suddenly just going, oh, oh, wait, I'm supposed to think about what I'm doing for years. People have just been saying, take test, write essay, yes, apply right. to college, take test, write essay. That's what you do. Why? Because that's what you do. Right. And then, <laughs> and then I get to say, why? Why do we do all this? Why are we the people we need? We are. What? What? How did we arrive at our at our moral assumptions? How did we arrive at our ethical beliefs? Are they based on anything, or did we just accept them because people more powerful than us told 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 us? And and it's a it's. I mean, I love it. I love teaching, yeah. um, and I love teaching because it's an age. I remember being that age when you're in college, um, but I see it all the time. It's an age where you want to. Um, you know, you want to question everything that you've yeah. that you've ever been told. You want, because you know it's the first time you've you've been out of your bubble, right? It's the first mm -hmm. time you're experiencing other other perspectives. Um, you know, um, when I think about my teenage kids, you know, they're not always in the Jordan bubble, but you know, they have jobs, they go to work, they interact a lot, but still, their jobs are within a few miles of the of the house, right? And as soon as they get to college, it's going to be you know people from totally different socioeconomic situations for, than them for people from totally different religions from them totally different cultural situations than them all stuck together and that's a beautiful thing yes. because it's sort of the first time you really start to think for yourself right now you know before that teenagers are kind of just trying to think for themselves with only the data that their parents have provided them <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 so uh jordan you remember that class that harvard class how to be happy that, that yeah, yeah. found its way onto coursera you didn't mean yeah, yeah. have, have you and temple ever thought about putting such a sort of like you know far-reaching class like the one you teach on on one of those platforms um yeah i mean we we've we've talked about it now and now and again um um 
that's sort of way outside of my, uh, my, you know, my <laughs> level, <laughs> level, right? Like I don't get to define, you know, you know, Temple's a gigantic university. We have, yeah. we have 40,000 students. Um, you know, I, I'm not trying to underplay my importance there or what I do, but I am saying, I don't, I don't have much say in whether or not we decide to put things yeah. on. Uh, I guess I could consider doing it myself. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And just get the university to sign off on a piece of paper. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It just sounds like a fascinating course. Um, uh, Sean, did you want to follow up on that question or, or can I? No, go ahead. Um, I, I, I got to go back. I mean, I'm sure you've been asked this a million times. In fact, I think I've, I've seen you uh, get asked this before. But, you know, that your publisher comes to you and says, why don't you write a book about parenting and you go back to them. I'm making this up in my head, but you go back to them and say, OK, here's the title I want to use. It includes the word feminism. They start to get concerned about, oh, this is going to hurt sales. I wonder if you if it occurred to you that maybe sort of leading with feminism, forgetting about sales might mean that this reaches the dads who need it the least and might sort of make 10 foot pull marks all over it for the dads who need it the most? Yeah. So th- this is a great question. Um, first, let me tell you a bit about the, the, the process. We had the name father figure, I think from the very beginning and as, uh-huh. the, as the outline, but what was that subtitle going to be, which in the book is how to be a feminist dad um, was probably months, uh, probably months of debate arguing. I mean, you know, um, uh, you know, because it's not just about me and it's not just about my publisher. You know, the, what's inside the book, I get to decide with just the editor. I'm sorry, not publisher. I meant to say editor. Uh, what's inside of the book is really just me and my editor and, you know, copywriter checks it. Maybe the legal department checks to make sure if there's anything that is questionable. Um, they didn't in this book, but that does happen in some books, depending on what they're about. Um What's on the outside of the book, you also have to talk to the marketing team. You also have to talk to the sales team. You also have to talk to, right? All of those people have stakes in it, right? Like, like it's going to end up in the catalog. Are we going to be able to sell it with four other books? So, so there's a lot of people involved in questions about cover and title. Um, um, and we went through a lot of choices, you know, patriarchy was in one of the early ones. I don't, it's not there any, I don't even remember what it was, but I remember the early subtitles had like, uh, you know, something like, you know, man up and crush the patriarchy or something like that. Right. Right. Um, um, I used to joke that it should be like, stop being a sissy and start fighting the patriarchy. I mean, I never considered <laughs> that one, but I was like, that's, that's oh, the irony. <laughs> um, um, uh, but but there was a lot of discussion. Patriarchy got nixed pretty quickly, um, um, which is interesting because I think in Italy they did use the word patriarchy in the in the title, uh, but they took the word feminism out. And there was a, a bunch of people who were like, "Why did they take feminism out? This is." And I was like, "Yeah, but they kept in the one that the Americans wouldn't let me keep in." So, uh-huh. <laughs> um, um, the, the 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 to me it was important that the book. Uh, your question, like, did I think it might only, you know, be, end up with preaching to the choir? Yeah, yes, I did. I th- I definitely considered that. I also considered that, like, you can't, I didn't want to lie, right? Like, you don't want to do it, pull a bait and switch here, right? Like, like, this is very clearly a book about gender. And if I told you this was just a book on, like, how to be a dad, and then you picked this up, you'd be like, whoa, this is not the book I thought I was going to get. It's just about be good dad, right? Um, so, so to me, that it was important to be honest about what it was. And clearly, anyone who wasn't going to be okay with that message was going to put it down in the beginning of chapter one, mm-hmm. no matter what, right? So that was, but to me, there was also a whole other side 
which is when you work with a major publisher like Little Brown, the book is going to be seen, even if it's mm -hmm. not read, in many mm -hmm. places, right? The cover yeah. of this book has been in the New York Times. If you walk into Barnes & Noble, it's going to be facing you. It's going to show up on the Amazon page. And I wanted the word feminism as this almost activist act to say yeah. I mm -hmm. wanted mm -hmm. fatherhood and feminism to be in your face, these things, like I wanted that to, like that's a kind of power that I had that I wanted to take advantage of and go, go people, whether they read it or not, I want uh, thousands of people to go, wait, what is a feminist? Can you have a feminist dad? And just, mm -hmm. I wanted that question to be asked regularly. By the way, we had to change the cover um, at the last minute. It had already gone in, it hadn't gone into production, but it had already gone in a lot of marketing materials when uh and one of the, the i'll tell you about it the original cover had sort of um the icons from the men's men's bathroom holding a man holding two children um a, a, a boy and a girl um and and there's an article you can find it on medium that i that i wrote about this experience and i thought it was great i loved it the, the men's icon was wearing the pussy hat from the from the from the women's march i was like yeah, extremes yeah. feminism you can still find it some places online a friend of mine who's trans look, called me up and said, I hate the cover of your book. And I'm like, what? How can you hate that? Like, I wrote this book. It's like, you, right? Like, I, 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 and I listened really carefully. And what I learned was, one, um, the pussy hat movement, a lot of people felt alienated by it. A lot of people felt like oh. it was a white women's movement that it kept out, uh, that it mm -hmm. kept out other people. And so that was alienating to some people. Okay. That's not, I'm not trying to say that makes it bad. I'm just saying, I didn't want an image that was alienating to some people on the cover. And then what I was also told was that trans, uh, trans folk are really triggered by bathroom icons because they mm. don't know where they're supposed to go. Oh yeah. Right. Wow. And so seeing a bathroom yeah. icon is always a, a moment of anxiety. And I was mm. like, well, that's, that's not cool. And then the last thing is it had a boy and a girl. And I went that, that while that's, you know, that's, that, that's very binary in our thinking about what gender is, which again, I'm not saying you're not allowed to talk about boy and girl, but I didn't want to put an image that said there's only boy and girl. Cause what right. about someone who's non-binary? <laughs> right. And I didn't want to plaster that all over the world for people to see. So to me, we ended up with the current cover. Uh, um, and I remember having to call the publisher and they were, I, I mean, they agreed very quickly. So I'm not trying to bad mouth them in any way, but I, they were, they were not happy either. They were like, wait, you mean we have to redo this? We get it, but this is huge, right? We're yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like, this is a huge, Huge, a huge change. And again, all of these things are not about what you can or can't do. It was, I, I didn't want, I didn't want to put in Barnes and Noble an image of fatherhood that reinforced the binary ways of thinking mm -hmm. that, that I'm trying to deconstruct. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's fascinating. I, 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 you know, there's so much the backstory there. You never wouldn't have you wouldn't have gotten to hear that. I gotta ask. There is the, the trucker hat is not without its own irony. Who who yeah. came up with the fucking trucker hat? I oh, love that. oh, oh, an amazing graphic designer. His first name's Philip. I can't think of his last name right now, but hopefully you'll be able to put it in the notes and we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll we'll get it um, and put his Instagram in the, in, in the notes. Yeah, he, yeah. Who actually designed the original Twitter logo, not the current one, but the original. Oh, wow. Um, and they had to go to him, actually. He doesn't work. I mean, he does a lot of book covers, but he was an outside and we had to go to him because we couldn't figure out anything. It took us months of going, what would you put on a cover? And this is what he came up with. Um, 
I, you know, I don't know if it's, I don't know if we're, I, I, I love it because I think it makes you first go trucker hat. Are we supposed to think MAGA when we think trucker has, it's like the anti MAGA. Yeah, yeah. Are we yeah. supposed to think baseball cap like sports? I think, you know, that's why I love the way he wrote feminist on it. I think mm-hmm. it looks very sort of sportsy. Um, um, or is it just about the different hats we wear? That's another way I like to sure. think about it. And I think it makes us think of all, all those questions. And I like the ambiguity in it. I don't have no, I don't really know exactly what he was thinking when he decided to do it. The thought, there's a little uh, outline of a dad on it, uh, on the cover. And you'll notice with two kids, which are do not, you can't identify their, the gender of the mm-hmm. two kids. Um, yeah. That's on purpose. The original version had him wearing a cape, like he was a superhero. And I took that one off because after I saw it, I went, <laughs> wait a second. You don't get to call yourself a superhero for doing like the basic human <laughs> thing of not being a misogynist asshole, right? Like you're not a superhero. For yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a low bar. <laughs> <laughs> So at time at times reading the book again, you know, we talk about that it's a, a book for dads or wh- whatever. I mean, I really, I really connected with it more as a book about gender, and and not in the um, kind of real technical way. But at times, I felt like I was I, you were conveying that we we could be living in a simulation where 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 where, where we're born with these you know body parts. And we come into this world and then it's the simulation that just that we just adopt to and that we're just working our way through. Um, Does that resonate with you at all that 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 I would have that feeling? I think that's a great metaphor because I think it's true. Right. Um, um, And first of all, you know, the the thing and I say it in the book um, uh, and it's worth saying because we still hear so much about this. Right. The, uh, The people tend to assume the, the way we tend to think about it in a mainstream way right now is that gender is the identity questions, you know, masculinity, femininity, and then there's the real biology, which is binary, which of course yeah. is not true, right? Yeah. Um, and when you start to look at the science and I deconstruct it there, you discover that actually the gender is way more dependably binary than the, than the biology. And that's at the core of the issue here, which is that Okay, that once you start to get into the biology and discover how many different kinds of varieties there are of humans, you realize that our cultural messaging is telling you that you have to fit into one or the other of yeah. these categories. And okay, let's put this in something we can all probably remember. You know, remember being a pubescent boy and going and and, and going. You know, are my muscles big enough? And uh, will I ever be a real man because my muscles don't look, or because my hair doesn't look the right way, or because or because I'm not too skinny, or right, right? And 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 then take that to imagine you were born intersex, which means it's not clear whether or not you have male, what we would traditionally call male or female genitalia, um, mm-hmm. right? Like, then what do you do? Like, imagine what it's like for people who who are, who are born with ambiguous genitalia, who just look go through our culture and they're like, I guess I'm a freak, but you're not a freak. You're just a natural part of the human uh, variation in the world. And it's right. not fair that we keep telling you you're the weird one. You didn't decide who you were. Nobody decided who you how you were born and so yeah we have this like enormous system that is telling you you have to be things and it's not just gender right it's telling you it's it's in everything right. else 
what jobs are you allowed to be? What, like, like, you know, am I an introvert or an extrovert? Every time I hear any kind of typology, I'm just like, I'm sure it does more harm than good, right? Anytime, yeah. you know, I, I mean, like, I know there's a lot of people who read certain kinds of, of archetypal typology, things like that, and it's really powerful for them. But ultimately, my response to most of them is, is, while it might help some people, it's also telling us that there are limited ways to, mm -hmm. to, to show up. And I'm happy it helps those people and that's powerful, but we have to remember that once we take it as anything other than a helpful tool, we start to tell people that their choices are limited. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's so many examples of like, you hear about, I, I was just reading um, Frederick Joseph's book, Patriarchy Blues. It just came out of couple of weeks ago. It's very good. Actually, I highly recommend it. Uh, and one of the things he talks about is he loved, um, he loved musical theater as a kid, but he was so afraid of getting, of being called gay that he mm. stopped having any interest in it. And he wonders if it weren't for the patriarchal assumptions, would he be a Broadway star? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah, that's the, I, yeah, that, that pisses me off because I, I, I've been doing occasionally in support of men living. I've been doing on Instagram, these quick videos about things that don't need to be gendered. I mean, I've been carrying a purse for 30 years, um, you know, headbands, you're wearing a Which headband. We have to call a man purse, right? Because it's so yeah. unnatural that people call it a man purse, right? They have to name it because it's weird. Right. Goofy. But it's not weird. Just I goofy. carry one too. I right. carry one too. My older brothers say things like man person and they, uh, to me. And, and every time I'm like, I'm like, mm, I hope you're hearing this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the, yeah, it's just a thing. I mean, but we have to gender it. It's crazy. Um, uh, oh, shit. I lost my train of thought. How about ahead, the best Chris. actor, best actress category in uh, in the Oscars? As it, as as if acting has any reason. Like like, why do yeah. we have a different award? Like I get drama, comedy. Okay, that makes sense. But yeah, like, yeah. Well, so that this yeah. leads me to a question that I had, Jordan. Um, so 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 first thing I'll say is uh, uh, sort of this background. Like there are so many themes in your book where you could have replaced feminism with anti-racism. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, like there, there's so Absolutely. many, we're pulling in the same direction on a lot of these fronts. Um, it also occurred to me that in the second edition, I think it'd be a cool idea to put like a, a, a dictionary in the back for all the terms, right? Just <laughs> oh, because yeah. people don't know the difference between sexism and misogyny. For so, so we, so, so I considered this actually, and I oh, interesting. Had, a list, had a list of, and, and the problem that came up was, what words do you include and how do you choose which words? So if I put, um, let's say I want to explain, let's say I want to put transgender there. Well, can I put transgender and not man? Right. Uh -huh. Like, you know, you know what I mean? Like it, once you start to decide which words need definite, which words need to be explained, you're also deciding what's normal and what's not. And you're making assumptions so that I couldn't get past that problem. I see your point. I agree with it on some level. I would love to have a glossary, but I couldn't figure out how to do it in a way that didn't seem like I was also making assumptions that could be problematic. Well, I mean, well, now, uh, now I'm going down that, that tangent, though, but but I mean, the, the, our our time on this planet is limited. And so like, I would argue that the, the right thing for us to do is not be afraid of making mistakes like that. I'm not criticizing your decision. Yeah, but yeah, I'm I, saying like, 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 let, let, let's let, let's, you know, in a way sort of as long as our intent is good, 
and we've considered the effects and the impact that that, that our actions may have. Let, let's not be afraid of making mistakes and you know having people call us in for it later on. That's but right. Anyway. But I just want to say, like, my concern wasn't about having people call us in for it. My concern was, what if a trans father reads this book and they like everything until they get to the glossary and then they go, this yeah. glossary makes me invisible. It's, Screw, yeah. you know, I feel horrible now reading this book. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, the fact that I considered that meant I needed to act on it. Yeah. And the right. publisher's like, screw you. You can't have 200 additional pages for this, uh, you know, uh, for exhaustive. Every yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and, but, but on the terms thing, because I wrote, because I, I mean, you have so many great terms in here that, that, and I don't know if you want to talk about them real quickly, but narcissistic patriarchal authority, uh, locker room gender essentialism, I mean, rigorous inclusivity. I love that. I mean, which is a great, which is a great practice, but, I, but honestly, I'm reading some of those terms. I'm thinking I, I can't even, I'm not, sm <laughs> I'm not smart enough to understand what these well, terms I do, mean. Those, those, but, uh, those I do define uh, yes, when I, you when do. I first, you do. Yeah. And actually to most of the words, I will just say to Chris, to, to the, the question of the dictionary glossary, what I did do is go back. And most of the time, yeah. the first time I used the word, I built it into the sentence, yes. the definition, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yes. I realized that, 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 and if I couldn't do that, I was, I, I didn't, you know, then I was like, that's a problem. Right. But I had right. to find ways to do it. Uh, those two terms, we should define them. Um, I guess I'll start with the locker room, gender essentialism. Um, you know, gender essentialism is a pretty common term in gender theory. It just means the assumption that gender defines psychological or other um, um, attributes, right? So when mm -hmm. we say things like women are nurturers, right? Like that's a gender essentialist assumption, mm -hmm. right? It's just wrong, right? There's nothing, there, it's not true. It's been disproven. There's nothing essential in being a woman that makes you that, right? Um, and then we have the same ones for men, right? Like men are essentially horny all the time, right? Not mm -hmm. true, right? It has nothing to do with your gender, nothing to do with your genitals, right? You might be horny all the time. Many of us are, but it has nothing to do with our genitals, right? It just has to do with the fact that we're horny all the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and that I added the locker room and I did it for two reasons. One, yeah. I wanted to point to I wanted to hint at the moment when Trump said that grab him by the pussy was just locker room talk, not yeah. just because I wanted to pick on Trump, but because I wanted to realize that most of us, all of us, I think, accepted that explanation. Not that we were OK with the fact that he said it, but we, that, that explanation had some logic to it. I don't understand why it would be OK in a locker room to be horrible right yeah. right yeah. like we assume that there's a place where boys are allowed to just be horrible right like 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 and that and like we should all just go locker room talk there shouldn't even be any locker room talk right yeah. right right yeah. right that is not yeah. the same kind of talk you would have at a sleepover that you would you know i get there there's some privacy but it's why is it privacy among similarly gendered people like it should just be among friends right mm -hmm. um so, so I wanted to do that. I also just kept thinking about how many stupid ideas I had learned about what women want and who they are in the locker room when I was yeah. in middle school. Like, I remember the kids being like, girls just want you to go up to them and talk to them this way and they want to be done. And I was like, I, you know, and I believed it because I was an immature 12 year old who didn't, hadn't quite figured out how to make sense of the, of the world. And so many of our gender essentialist beliefs 
are about the same as our middle school selves in their mm. like logic. And when you really unpack them or look at any of the research, you discover, you know, none of it holds up. They've done meta analyses, of, which means they take all the studies of all the different psychological differences between genders, even the ones that are trying to prove the ones that are trying to prove it doesn't exist. And the ones that are trying to prove it exists, the, 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 the rate, is, I can't, I'm not, don't quote me on the numbers because I haven't read it, but the rate is so tiny, right? Like, like, like it's like 0.001% of, of accuracy where we can, where there's anything there, which is not good enough to do anything in any study. Right. Um, and, mm -hmm. and it's, this has happened twice in the last 20 years where they've taken every study that exists and looked at what they found and discovered there's almost no, uh, there, there's nothing there. It's, it might be the best proven thing in all of the social sciences at this point that there are no psychological attributes that can be that can that can be ascribed to gender. That doesn't mean that we haven't been socialized to have certain right. behaviors. Right. Like, yes, yeah. most men are going to be certain ways because they've been taught to be certain ways. Ah. Right. If you haven't, by the time you've practiced that 40 years, you're going to be it. And if every mm -hmm. person around you has told you that this is who you are, you're going to be it. But mm -hmm. it's not because you were born that way. It's because you were socialized that way and, and vice versa. Right. If everyone tells all of their daughters that they're better at cleaning than their sons are, they're going to. Positive reinforcement yeah. is going to it's going to mm -hmm. become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So so so. That that's was the locker room gender essentialism. The other one is more, it, it, to me, is one of the most important ideas in the whole book, the narcissistic patriarchal authority, um, which is just the idea, uh, uh, you know, narcissism, of course, it, is the, is, it comes from the story of Narcissus, the boy who looked in the mirror and loved his own image so much that he couldn't stop looking in the mirror till he died, right? That's the, that's the, that, the water, actually, because they didn't have mirrors, but his own reflection. Mm -hmm. Um, that's narcissism. Patriarchal just means, have, you know, having to do with the father. Um, and, and, and authority has to do with authorship, actually. Same mm -hmm. root as to be an author, right? So what I'm talking about is this idea that fathers and men in general, but, but, but fathers even more so, have been taught to look around their entire families, their entire world, their entire commute, their entire everything, and only see their own story there, right? Mm -hmm. Just assume that they're the star of all of that. Right. So we sit in our houses and we're like, this is a story about how good I am at being a dad. Right. Instead of realizing that I'm sitting in a house where in my house, there happen to be six of us. Every single one is living in their own movie. They're all the hero in their own movie. They're all the hero in the old, their own story. And actually, I'm the villain in some of their stories sometimes. And I don't like it. I don't want to be the villain. But I, but as a narcissistic patriarchal authority figure, we walk through we walk through life assuming that they're they're insulting us because they treat us like the villain and not recognizing that I'm the hero, <laughs> right? Mm, and that's what yeah, that's mm -hmm. about. And how many different places in our lives we do that? Walk around assuming, you know, of course you see yourself as the protagonist, the hero in your own story, but we assume everyone else does too, and right. uh, we assume everyone else sees us that way instead of remembering mm -hmm. that they do the same thing. And so yeah, we right. must you're going to be the troll beneath the footbridge. Sometimes you're going to be the villain. You're going to be the mentor. You're going to be the goofy sidekick. You're going to be the romantic interest. You're going to be, you know, you're going to be all these other characters in someone else's story. It's a, to me, the one way to think about it is we're all living in colliding myths. We're all, yeah. we're all living in these colliding myths. And a lot of our fights in life that we have with our spouses, with our friends, with our partners, or because we're like pissed off. We're like, you're looking, you're telling the wrong story here, but they're not telling the wrong. They're just telling the right tell story their from story. their perspective. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 I, I, I'm, I'm glad we touched on that gender essentialism thing. That was a new term to me because I'm not 
well-educated in this whole space. Um, but but I want to make sure I'm understanding it right, because my question I jotted down was help us define or distinguish between gender essentialism and gender. I think the term I used probably made up was conditioning. You use socialization. Right. Yeah. So if I'm hearing you right, like gender essentialism, that shit's bunk. Right. We could just throw that out. <laughs> yes, but gender conditioning is a real thing. What was the second? I'm sorry. Gender socialization or conditioning is a real thing that your book is helping us to redefine and push back on and uh, for our next generation. All right. And to recognize, you know, you might decide, you know, to recognize that it's that that it's based on nonsense doesn't mean you have to stop doing things. You might still decide the best. You know, I talk about this in, in, in the book. You might still decide the best thing for your family is for mom to do the laundry and dad to mow the lawn. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. But at least right. recognize that you got there because of some crazy sexist assumption right right, right right now now it might make sense to keep those roles but how many things in your household are the roles defined because of genitals right yeah. <laughs> like that don't make any sense right like yeah. nobody's better at laundry sorry you press a button maybe in the days when you had to like actually do something but you put it in the thing you pour some soap in, you press a button there's not a better or a worse <laughs> right right there's well, I'm pretty good at laundry though practice. i just want to say it. i'm really good at laundry I'm just dude. If yeah. if you guys saw how long it takes me to fold a shirt, you would never ask me to do it. But that's practice. But that's I, just practice, right? Like right. that's the whole difference. If from the time you were four, people were being like, like boys do laundry, they're good at folding. You would have learned how to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so let me just finish the answer. It's so a gender essentialism. If you just take it as it sounds, is just the idea that there is something essential about. Yeah genders right and there isn't anything essential about genders been proven again and again and again right and you know and, and we can think of so many whether the examples are you know men are more violent right this thing is one of the assumptions people make right it's just not true it's been disproven again and again and again there's three men right now on this call we're all very different right we all have our own things that would that define who we are none of them have anything to do with our genitals right none of them have anything to do with the fact even the fact that we identify as men right like like that like which just mm -hmm. it's just mm -hmm. who we are and they're mm -hmm. not connected to those things yes we all get socialized and it's unfortunate that we get socialized because socialization as I, when i was using the example of frederick joseph right limits our possibilities right you think it's not manly to be to sing in broadway unless you're gay right so therefore you so therefore you think you start to believe that there's that's an essential truth and then you take it for granted we take so many of these things i was yeah. with a mom the other day at a like um a, a tennis match one of my kids tennis match and she said um she said, oh, the kids have been fighting so much since we got out of school. I think it's because they're all, all girls. And I was like, I don't think it has anything to do with gender. <laughs> Did you like, say that? Oh. Did you go yeah, off? I said it. And she was like, yeah, yeah you're right. You're right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but I, you know, if you think about how often we just people will be like, I have three kids. And you'll be like, what, what? Are they boys or girls? As if that's going to tell you any. Like I remember doing this. Yeah. And sure. As if I was yeah. going to just assume if it was three boys, it's more rambunctious than your house, right? Like that's. There's no reason to assume that. That's yeah, a right. myth. That's not. Yeah, there's right. no truth to that, right? Like you could have three boys who just like to quietly play video games and never talk. You could have three boys that read. You could have right. Like you have no idea. There's. They're not naturally more rambunctious. Um, so Jordan, I gotta ask, are you a Philly boy? I am. I am. I am. Yeah. Well, I, I technically live one block outside Philly. So if I walk one block, just 
directly behind me. I will be at the road that is the, uh, the, the, the city line. And that's not, I love Philly. It wasn't on purpose. I don't think I realized when I moved here that it was one block outside the city. I'm a little happy about it because it means I don't have to pay the city wage taxes. Um, um, I mean, I still have to pay them when I work in the city, but not, not on the work I don't do in the city. So that makes, that makes me happy. But, but um, I, you know, I love that I'm close. I love Philly. Philly's a great city. I was, Sean, I was going to throw a cheap shot out there at Philly because, you know, we're having my buddy Don Shelby on the show and he's a Philly boy. And yeah. I think that meets our Philly quota for about three years. So, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just I'm just messing around. You so, can do a whole you can do a whole cheesesteak survey if you want. Right. Pat's and what's the other one? Uh, yeah. yeah. So I, so um, I just want to say the book is great. It's not only really informative, but it's entertaining. Um but I want, I just want to make a turn in the book. Jordan talks about before he got into psychology, he was a chef. And one of the things I signed up as I was getting curious about you and I signed up for your newsletter is that you start and you need more episodes, the father figure <laughs> cooking show. And so one of the things, Chris, you may not have seen this, that he made was buttermilk bourbon waffles. Now, why oh. bourbon? He says, well, I ran, <laughs> I ran out of vanilla extract and added bourbon. Oh, and I'm wow. like, oh, boy. Uh, so I have not yet <laughs> waffles because I'm iffy on waffles, but I'm pro bourbon. So, <laughs> so, you know, give us a little perspective on the bourbon waffles or how much are you cooking when we're going to see the next episode of the cooking <laughs> show uh, and your favorite bourbon. Oh, that's a well. No, that uh, okay. Well, those are a lot of it. questions for you. Yeah, yeah. Listen, it's true. Like one day I started putting bourbon in the waffles, and it was only because we were out of vanilla extract. And I thought vanilla extract is basically just alcohol that vanilla has soaked in. And I was like, you know what? Bourbon's actually better. It's got some like hints of vanilla. It's uh -huh, got the sure. wood. It's got the cinnamon. It's gonna do the same thing in a, in a way. And so I started putting the bourbon in. I don't know if it really is either one is necessary in the long run. Like, I don't know if you can taste it. Um, uh -huh. I think you'd have to put a lot of bourbon in to really <laughs> taste the bourbon in it. And, you know, I was making a cooking show, so I thought it was fun to add the, to, to, to use the bourbon for, for comedy entertainment reasons. Um, but it works. I mean, I'd still do when I need vanilla extract and I don't have it. Uh, it's always a, a fine to go with bourbon or some other flavored um, um, alcohol. I don't know if we're going to do any more episodes. I hope we, I hope we do. You know, it was sort of like, it was right when the book came out, we wanted to yeah. find, think of creative ways to promote it. Um, and, and I liked the idea that cooking, uh, do, I, I mean, I, I know how to cook. I was a chef for years, so I could talk while doing it. And I liked the idea that it was sort of modeling unexpected gender norms right the man yes. cooking for the family while being able to talk about these things without just being so on the nose that i was like you should cook right so so that that was that was part of why i did it my favorite bourbon i i you know it's it's bookers it's got to be bookers it's it's mm. it bookers um yeah I mean, Booker's is too expensive. Otherwise, I would buy every single one that they come out, <laughs> right? Because they like come out with three, three editions a year, and each one's different. And ever, I've never had one that's not amazing. But it's also like eighty, ninety dollars a bottle, and so oh, really? I don't buy it that much. And usually, people gift it to me because they know I like it. I mean, I, there's a lot of other ones I like. The one I drink on the most regular basis is is Wild Turkey One Hundred and One, which is uh -huh. like the easiest, nicest sipper, cheap. 
and you know you what yeah. with ice or without ice is still a, is still a good for i mean shockingly cheap for what you're getting i think I, there's a lot of times i've had much more expensive bourbons that don't even uh that don't even compare to wild turkey 101 it's a it's a it's a great it's a it's a great i mean there's lots of other ones i like you know specials here and there but since we have a lot of listeners i think i tell them <laughs> one that i guarantee that they'll be able to find wild turkey 101 and it, and it's you know it, it's not the wild turkey you remember drinking <laughs> no it's definitely not <laughs> which is not that terrible actually the wild turkey you were drinking in college but this is like a whole other level <laughs> Um, the next time you're in Chicago, make sure you look us up. We'll take you to my uh, my neighbor, my friend's uh, new distillery. It just just oh. opened, the taste room just opened, um, oh, and he's please. making some interesting rides and bourbons. Um, I also am a big Old Forester fan. A few years ago, me too. I, I spoke. I, yeah, I was in I was in Louisville speaking at the Muhammad Ali Museum, and I did the whole tour. And Old Forester was just like the vibe in there was better than all the other ones. And yeah, and just Old Forester uh, 100 is another cheap one that's just fantastic. But then once you get to their more expensive ones, like the 1920, uh, yeah. they're just incredible. They're just incredible, incredible. Yeah. and not outrageously expensive it's still not cheap but not i think the 1920 is like 50 50 bucks not you know and it drinks like many right. of the bourbons that are 100 150 um yeah bucks yeah 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 so when you come here i'll take you there but if you could just bring us a bottle of pappy while you're at it yeah um, i'll just try we'll, to we'll, we'll, we'll... <laughs> let me tell you something pennsylvania is still a state where the, the you know the state controls all liquor sales and in, in uh so you there are no liquor stores that's actually good th i think it's a good thing some people hate it but it makes pennsylvania the largest buyer of all alcohol in the world, right? Which means really? we get some really uh, like uh, we got wines that are really uh, that are really like underpriced because they can just buy like an entire uh, um, uh, production. But they also when they do get pappy, they can't mark it up because it's the government, right? Oh so God. they so they run a lottery. So I think I'm currently in a lottery. I've never won one, but I think I've entered like 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 you know, Pennsylvania. Oh, if you live in Pennsylvania, you actually get it for the asking price, which is $150, even wow. though I can sell it for fifteen thousand. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The state of Pennsylvania holds lotteries for liquor. Like, yes. is that what you just said? So you well, put your name. How, you, wait, how does you that still work? Have to buy it. You don't, yeah, you pay full price. Yes. The lottery for, right. for the right to buy it, right? So I, I go online and I sign up. And then uh, if I win it, I have already agreed that if I win it, I can, I the bottle is mine to purchase because they only get like what, 250 bottles of Pappy yeah, yeah. for the whole state. And then, and then we, and then there's a lottery for who gets it. I've entered every single one for at least five years. <laughs> never won. My brother also does it. He's never won. We actually, the second the lottery gets announced, one of us always texts the other and goes, lottery just got announced. Go, go sign up. <gasps> well, well, <laughs> if that, if that guy named Shapiro wins the governorship, I I think you might get an in on on <laughs> getting your bottle of happy. I, I, I mean, yeah, I would hope. I hope he wins the governorship too. I mean, you know, he's he's a really yeah. good guy. I'm a big I'm a big fan of him. Um, and you know, if you just look at the, the 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 if you go look at the the 2020 election, he was one of the uh, one of the attorney generals who was just like, no way, yeah. this is the truth, and yeah. it doesn't matter how many times the president screams. Mm hmm. That's awesome. Um, okay, so uh, we're, we're, I don't want to take too much more of your time. We do ask uh, a couple of, of canned questions at the end of these things. These were sort of like candid? Uh, no, well, in, in, <laughs> <laughs> inside the actor studio type thing, you know, kind of 
arguably cheesy, but we like them. So okay. are you game for that? Yes, yeah, sure. I'm game uh, for There's anything. only three of them. All right. Um, first one is, uh, uh, let's see. Oh, I, I, I just lost. You don't remember here. them? No, I ain't got it. Okay, Jordan, what do you wish you could have told your 10-year-old self? Oof. You know, <laughs> I have a great answer for the. I do. I have to make them like quick and short. No, no, no you take oh, your no. time. I got nowhere to be. Listen, if you if you if you look at me, and I'm sure I'm sure we'll have a picture of me somewhere on this. Don't pick the one with the hat, okay? When you when you put the picture on, okay? Because I have a lot of hair, okay, and then, <laughs> and big hair, and it was really long. But my mother basically until I was like. 30 uh, i mean she didn't make the decision from 20 to 30 but until i was 20 she kept convincing me to cut it short and to cut it like you know i had like bangs and i looked and and and, and one day i like stopped cutting it and let it grow and suddenly like a whole different spirit of me it was like this is my real me so i want to go back to my 10 year old self and go don't let your mom take you to the barber <laughs> <laughs> easily the most practical answer we've ever gotten to that question uh that's awesome um all right next question do you have a mantra in life these days a mantra in life these days um Lately, I don't know if I have a mantra, but but the closest I'm going to get to is I've, I, I've been reading this book by Terrence Real or Terrence Real. I don't know how you say it. He's a relationship expert. He's got lots mm -hmm. of books. You've probably mm -hmm. heard of him. He's got a new one out uh, called Us. Uh, very good. I, I, I recommend I haven't quite finished it, but at least the first half is is really good. And one of the things he talks about is the difference between your adjusted child and your wise adult. The idea being that as children, we go through certain traumas, all of us, no matter what, right? Like some worse than others, depending on who you are. We all go through a lot of different kinds of trauma, some because of parents, friends, siblings, even sometimes priests, right? Could be really bad traumas. Uh, and that we've learned to adjust and we've developed all these strategies that we grow into as adults um, um, to try to adjust to the pain we felt as kids and that most of us many of the times are still operating from that place of the adjusted child and sometimes we got to go throw it out and go what would the wise adult did here if they hadn't experienced all those things as a, as a uh -huh. child how do i make the right and that's been enormous for me to just remind myself all day even with my romantic relationship especially to be able to go wait you're fighting now because you have a wounded child inside you that's uh -huh. trying to avoid mm -hmm. uh pain and it's being mean and, and defensive when really this is a pretty straightforward issue that you're dealing with right mm. now. And from a wise adult standpoint, it's a simple answer of, I love you, but this makes me feel sad, right? <laughs> right. Oh, and instead yeah. I'm going, I'm angry Arr! when I really want to go, I want to work this out, but I'm scared. <laughs> uh -huh. That's a great concept. Uh, it sounds like a book I could stand to read. I really, uh, I recommend it. I recommend it. I mean, again, I've only read, I recommend the first half. I can't recommend the second half yet, but talk to me in a couple of days. Okay. I'll tell you, <laughs> you let us know when you bring that Pappy to Chicago. Uh, last question. What do you hope that people will say about you at your wake? Uh, ooh, what do I hope that people will say about me? Um, that's a really hard question. I mean, it is a hard question. It is. It is. Especially because like I have this like issue. I remember going to funerals as kids um, and they would, I remember going like great uncle and grandparent and I'd be like, 
who are they describing, right? Like, like uh-huh. go to funerals, people just say, suddenly everyone is the nicest, most decent, kindest, perfect human yes. on the planet when they're yeah, yeah. when the eulogies are happening. That's a good so point. Like, yeah. like that's yeah. not the person I met. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so um, there's a part. Of the, so actually, I can make up anything, right? You know, I hope they say that I was a fantastic singer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you can barely say anything in a way. <laughs> yeah. Well, you you, I mean, you sang the so hot funny. dog song pretty well. Well, actually, that's that right. was your buddy that sang yeah, yeah, the song. Yeah, I'm actually the bad singing that does back up on yeah. that. No, uh-huh. I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I, what I really do hope, you know, I hope that, uh, I hope that people recognize at the end of uh, of my life. I hope that people recognize just how hard I tried to fight for everybody's dignity. Um, um, and you know, that's to me, the main thing, everyone deserves dignity and I will do whatever I can to fight for people's dignity. I hope, and I hope I influence a lot of, uh, a lot of people, you know, as a, as a writer, uh, 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 as an author, part of what motivates that. And I hope this doesn't sound narcissistic or conceited, but part of what motivates that is like, you want to shift people's thinking and you want to have an impact on the way on the way that people think about the world and you think that you can have a positive impact and anyone who says otherwise you know i know you get like people like james patterson and i'm not insulting him i like james patterson he's fine as an author i don't know him as a person or anything but as an author he's 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 fine but you get people who are like i just try to write stories i like i think that that's a little bit i think it's a lie right like i think yeah. no you don't you try to write things for lots of people to read and be impacted by um yeah. and and that's uh, it is a little bit narcissistic to think that you can do that but it's what some of us, you know, some we, you know, we we all are a little uh, are a little delusional and narcissistic in our own in our own ways. It's not always a bad thing. So it's funny. Now I think we should reframe that or rephrase that question because when answered literally or considered literally, you're exactly right. No one says a fucking bad thing about anyone <laughs> who just passed away. But you got to the intent of the question, which is what yeah. kind of mark do you want to leave on this place um, yeah. when you leave? It should be like, what you what do you think you're you know what do you hope you're your your grandkids tell their children about you mm. yeah 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 exactly when you're gone. um well it's funny too because the reason i really hope they don't say i was an abuser right like like that's oh. the truth like that's when right at the eulogy no one goes oh he was a sexual abuser right but but the grandkids when you're dead when they're gonna be like oh we don't talk about your great grandfather because he's <laughs> <Dirt bag. laughs> Uh, the, uh, I, I, I asked if you were from Philly, uh, only half because I wanted to, to, to poke fun at, at Philly. The other half was because as I was reading your book, um, in my, in my work, in my career, one of my favorite quotes is from a Philadelphia activist named Caroline, Caroline LeCount. And she says in that quote, she says, you know, teaching black children well is the purest form of activism. And sort of I expand that to say teaching black, brown and poor kids well is, is the purest form of activism. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that um, like as parents, we're teachers as well. And so how we raise this next generation is everything. Right. And so I, I just uh, I really uh, enjoyed your book and appreciate the work you're doing. And uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Sean, you want to you want to. Uh, yeah, I, I really, I, it, it, knowing that um, Jordan has explored a little bit around education in his in his first book, which I have not yet read, have not read yet. Um, you were getting ready to open a whole nother a whole nother door uh, for conversation, which is a fascinating one to me. And and maybe we can come back to that 
in another yeah, I'd episode. Love to, I'd love to. Jordan, I don't know if Jordan if be, wants to or not. If you'd be open to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd be I'd be very open to it. And it remind you know, you reminded me as you said it, which we never which you commented on, Chris, but we I never said, which is that I've actually said in lots of interviews that I think this could be a book on 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 how to be an, an anti-racist father, you know. Um but that would be a 400 pick, you know, if I wanted to take mm-hmm. every injustice, yeah. which I would love to, right. Yeah. right? right? Yeah. It'd just be a much longer book. I had to pick a focus. Right. Um, um, and so, yeah, I would love to talk about the education piece. You know, I, I think a lot about it and I think a lot about how do you have a classroom that is, um, that is anti-racist, that is feminist. And I don't just mean, I, I actually don't mean at all, that you teach the concepts of that. I happen to teach yeah. a gender class and that's a mm-hmm. place to teach those concepts. Mm-hmm. But I mean all the time that it's informing the way you think about what you're teaching, right? Like, like is it, it, it you know, uh, and when I say it's informing, we're back to the very beginning of this discussion, which is, yeah. are you teaching in a way that creates a space where everybody can learn to the best of their ability? And often, as it sounds like you're hinting at, we're not right. We, 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 yeah. there's statistics that show it. And then if we even want to get philosophical, it's more, we are often more than anything teaching in most classrooms in this country in ways that are silencing or alienating black boys and black girls. And absolutely anyone who doesn't fit into binary gender categories, since we're mm-hmm. still arguing whether they exist, right? Yeah, like, no like as a country, we're still arguing whether thousands of people are even real. <laughs> yeah. And and herein lies the importance of like why we need to raise these young people up because they're, you know, there's a lot of hope. You've talked about your kids wanting to argue and they're probably little activists like my two girls are. And I, I that brings me great joy to see that they want to fight for justice um, and they're willing to fucking fight, too. They're yeah, braver that, than I was. That's, that's true. But also, I want to say that all the parents listening just to, just to 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 massage that comment one tiny bit which is they don't have to be little activists they just have to be little equalists right yeah like i don't care if they're just lawyers who make a lot of money as long as they do it in a way that's uh as long as that's how i feel about my kids you can be whatever you want you want to become a crazy like banker where all you want to do is make as much money as possible and be greedy that's your choice as long as you're not in the way of other people's decency and dignity while you do it yeah great point Good point to end on. Um, I, I'm very serious about all of the above. Happy talking education. <laughs> I know you're serious. Getting you, getting you over here again. <laughs> Come to Chicago. We'll talk uh, and we'll hang out. Um, but it's been a treat, man. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Great. This has been a lot of fun. Jordan enjoyed it. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. All right. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye bye. This is Chris. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of If You've Come This Far. And this is Sean. Remember to check us out at menliving.org.